Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, Syria. Not a good time to not have a Secretary of Defense. The lead starts right now. Breaking news, a shocking shakeup at the Pentagon as President Trump heads to Orlando right now to kick off his 2020 re-election campaign. A surprising story emerges surrounding why Patrick Shanahan is no longer in the running for the job. Not Trump. The hometown paper in Orlando says President Trump would have to cure cancer for them to even consider backing him. The author of the editorial will join us. Plus, images of guns threats that a storm is coming, the social media posts of the man who tried to shoot up a federal building in Dallas, and how he may fit a new frightening pattern. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We, we begin with some breaking news today. Any moment, President Trump is going to be departing the White House and heading to his official re-election campaign launch in Orlando, Florida, But he will be leaving behind some upheaval here in Washington. This afternoon, the president announced his acting secretary of defense, Patrick Shanahan, is pulling out of the Senate confirmation process to become the official secretary of defense. Shanahan's final day at the Pentagon will be Friday. It's yet another example of the quite turbulent Trump administration eclipsing what campaign advisors had hoped would be a blemish and drama free day for the president. The withdrawal following reports of Shanahan's combative divorce His ex-wife, Kimberly, had been arrested and charged with assault for a 2010 incident that left Shanahan with a black eye and bloody nose. Those charges were dropped, but Shanahan was also accused of hitting his now ex-wife in the stomach during the incident, an act he vehemently denies. Patrick Shanahan said in a statement today, quote, It is unfortunate that such a painful and deeply personal family situation from long ago is being dredged up and painted in an incomplete and therefore misleading way. Shanahan's son called his father a source of stability. His daughter said she never saw him raise a hand against their mother. In a Washington Post interview published this afternoon, Shanahan talked at length about that incident, as well as another act of family violence in 2011, when Shanahan's then 17-year-old son beat his own mother, Shanahan's now ex-wife. Shanahan at the time wrote a defense of his son, quote, use of a baseball bat in self-defense will likely be viewed as an imbalance of force However, Will's mother harassed him for nearly three hours before the incident, unquote. It's a statement that Shanahan today disavows. Needless to say, all of this news is sending shockwaves throughout the Trump administration on Capitol Hill and beyond. CNN's Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon for us. But let's start with CNN's Caitlin Collins, who is in Orlando ahead of the president's rally. Orlando, of course, a crucial swing part of a vital battleground state where supporters of the president's have been lined up for hours, even overnight for this evening's festivities. Our friend Shanahan is a good man, and he's done a great job, and he's a good buyer. President Trump announcing his pick to lead the Pentagon will withdraw before he's even been formally nominated. Writing on Twitter that acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan, who has done a wonderful job, has decided not to go forward with his confirmation process so that he can devote more time to his family. Trump said he'll name Army Secretary Mark Esper as the new acting defense secretary, but declined to say whether that would become permanent. Shanahan is the former Boeing executive who had been running the Defense Department since James Mattis resigned in protest in December, but only in an acting capacity until Trump announced last month he would make things official. But the paperwork was never filed raising eyebrows inside the White House about why. I, I, don't, I can't tell you how long the process is supposed to work. 
Now CNN has learned his resignation came amid details of a contentious divorce, including an allegation from Shanahan's ex-wife that he hit her during a dispute nine years ago, an allegation Shanahan has denied. His ex-wife was arrested and charged with assault, but those charges were later dropped. In a statement today, Shanahan said he was resigning to protect his children, writing, I would welcome the opportunity to be Secretary of Defense, but not at the expense of being a good father. The sudden withdrawal leaves the Pentagon without a permanent leader amid escalating tensions with Iran. President Trump has said very clearly he doesn't want to go to war. The drama also coming as the president heads to Orlando, Florida, to launch his reelection bid in front of 20,000 people. We will make America great again. He's held more than 50 rallies while in office and filed his re-election paperwork the day he was inaugurated. But the campaign says tonight's rally will make things official. It comes amid rising tensions in the president's campaign after leaked internal polls showed Trump trailing Joe Biden in critical states like Florida. Polls the president has denied even exist. Nobody showed you those polls because those polls don't exist yet. Now, Jake, the president is speaking to reporters as he heads here to Orlando tonight for this rally. He's talking about Pat Shanahan, calling him a wonderful guy, saying that he's going through a difficult time. And, Jake, he makes sure to point out that he did not ask Patrick Shanahan to withdraw. And he said, quote, I heard about it yesterday for the first time. It's very unfortunate. He says they have a great vetting process. But, Jake, we should note that our sources did tell us the White House was generally aware of the rumors surrounding Patrick Shanahan, but not about the details. All right, Caitlin Collins with the president uh, in Orlando, Florida. Let's go to CNN's Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. And Barbara, reports are, as we've been discussing, uh, that Acting Secretary Shanahan's FBI background check was holding up his confirmation hearing. Uh, Do we know that 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 had any sort of impact on pushing the confirmation hearing, which I think had been scheduled for close to the end of July? Well, uh, we do know that these questions were coming up. Sources have told us that the uh, questions were being raised about his personal life, about his marriage, his ex-wife, what had happened there and what had happened with his three children, and that they were answering those questions. I don't think we have a full picture yet of uh, what the FBI may have known, who they exactly spoke to, and what they found out. But what is clear is the paperwork wasn't getting filed, and this was a nomination that was dragging on, Jake. And of course, he'd been acting as Secretary of Defense for something like seven months. This is the longest the Pentagon has gone without a confirmed Secretary of Defense, I believe. And all this comes as the U.S. is involved in any number of military involvements, but also right now the showdown with Iran. Well, and this is what Mark Esper, the new acting secretary, will face on Friday when he takes office. Esper has been in charge of the Army. That means it's a very important but not necessarily highest level of national security classification information that he's been handling. He's involved in training and equipping the Army. Now, Mark Esper, starting perhaps as soon as today, has to get briefed up on everything from nuclear command and control procedures to how to send SEAL Team 6 into into combat if it were to come to that and those threats. What is the latest, the highest level security information about Iran, Russia, China, North Korea? Esper will now have to get a series of immediate briefings and be ready on Friday when he takes command at the Pentagon, Jake. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, and we should note that we don't even know if Esper is going to be formally nominated for the job or if he'll be yet another acting uh, secretary as we've had for seven months. Uh, Jeff, let me start with you. Um, Shanahan's been the acting secretary of defense since January 1st. 
this really does say something about not only the, the turnover of the Trump administration, the lack of vetting by the Trump administration, but also uh, just how many acting secretaries he has. So many acting secretaries in such serious positions. All uh, cabinet positions are serious, but this is the defense secretary. And as you said, look at all the hot spots, things happening around the world. But what's so s- astonishing about this is that he was confirmed already as the deputy secretary. So this didn't come up then, but he had to know that this was going to um, you know, be revealed. So why he didn't resign after Secretary Mattis stepped down is totally baffling to me. But the president uh, knew about this, did not know it was going to be as big of a deal. But the president, we're told, um, reached out to senators on Capitol Hill shortly before this was um, announced, and he said it was time to withdraw. So, look, he was not going to be confirmed. So I guess was, uh, um, I guess this was the appropriate course of action. But why did it reach this point mid-June yeah. And this could have been resolved six months ago. And I'm told that President Trump, on his way to Marine One, on his way to Orlando, just said that that he will most likely nominate uh, a- Army Secretary Esper to, to fill the role, although who knows. Um, Phil, you've been through the confirmation process. Yeah. Um, Shanahan was confirmed by the Senate, uh, as Jeff just pointed out, to serve as the Deputy Secretary of Defense in 2017. Would this not have come up then? I mean, a lot of media were chasing this story and it had popped up because there were police reports uh, of, of both incidents. Sure, but let's make sure we distinguish between what came up in a security process and what could prevent you politically from, being, from going through a nomination process on the Hill. By the way, I withdrew my nomination in 2009. I had a top secret clearance. It was because I was going to be embarrassed by a Senate committee. I said, no, I'm out. This is about a, a clearance process that looks at things like drug use, alcohol use, uh, use or abuse, uh, things like extreme debt. A lot of people have a lot of credit card debt. Somebody might have seen the police reports, and I disagree that he should step away. It looks like he might have been a victim. We don't know. Why would you step away if there's private information suggesting you had a, had a former spouse who did that, and now you transition from a security process to a political process where people say, I don't care if you can get a clearance. But the police we'll in get- Sarasota, Florida, according to the Washington Post report, said that he impeded an investigation, if that report is true. So... I mean, I think this is all much more complicated than we Yes, know. and just one final comment. There, there, there's also a difference between saying, did they know about the report, and was he truthful in saying this is what happened at the time? Mm-hmm. If you're not truthful, drug use, alcohol abuse, even if it's something that can be explained, the lack of candor will really hurt you. And, and just to clarify, what you're talking about is the, the violent incident allegedly by his son him coming in and not helping investigators. He's accused of not helping right. investigators with that investigation. We should also point out, just for fairness sake, that all three of the children um, are siding with their father and estranged from the mother for whatever that is worth. It's very uncomfortable talking about this right. sort of thing. It's Karen. very surprising, though, again, in a vetting process um, for a much lower role. I, the conversations that I've, ha- I've had with candidates where you sit down and you say, this is the kind of thing that will come out. What are we going to say? And so it's just very surprising. And it does say something about the nature of the way vetting may be happening or not happening in the Trump administration, that they were surprised by this if it didn't come up before or didn't see that this could be a problem. I think that's what I find so surprising. What's your reaction to all this, Amanda? I mean, obviously, the personal stuff is very messy here, but the professional side of this job is not a cakewalk. Um, There was a big story over the weekend in the New York Times that Congress had passed rules to allow the defense secretary to take um, secret Uh, cyber action against Russia. That certainly would have been part of the confirmation process. Mm -hmm. That certainly would have led to tough talks with President Trump. So I think a reasonable person can say, listen, maybe he's innocent, but this certainly would have ruined the lives of their kids in a very public way. 
Do you want to go through that process for a person that's going to pummel you in public life, too? No. That's interesting. And we also heard this from uh, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. He's on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, he's questioning how this hadn't come out before. Take a listen. There was possibly a deliberate concealment here. I think there ought to be an investigation by the IG in the Department of Defense. There is absolutely no reason for the failure to disclose to the Armed Services Committee as a part of our process that there was something in this nominee's past. Phil, you're looking skeptical. Time out. We have somebody's personal life at stake here about an incident that happened years ago with few facts. Before we impugn somebody's reputation, it'd be nice if people on the Hill could say we'll get a fact or two. Unsurprising, we have a Democrat taking a shot at Republican nominee. I would argue this is nonpartisan. A man had a family issue. Let's check on it before we go attack him. I don't think we know what happened here yet. Well, I just I think the issue that they're suggesting he hid this, this was in police reports. That's how we found out about it. And so I don't think that's totally fair by Blumenthal. All right. Everyone stick around. We have more to talk about. President Trump is not getting a warm welcome from every corner of Orlando, Florida. The editorial board of the city's largest newspaper just issued a stunning endorsement using phrases such as assault on the truth and no capacity for empathy or remorse. We're going to talk to the paper's opinion editor who wrote that editorial next. Then it looks as though convicted former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort will be spared a visit to one of America's most notorious prisons. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, the doors are now open for President Trump's re-election campaign launch event in Orlando. But before he takes the stage, the editorial board of one of the state's largest newspapers just made an endorsement for 2020. And their endorsement is, quote, not President Trump. The Orlando Sentinel editorial board writing, quote, enough of the chaos, the division, the schoolyard insults, the self-aggrandizement, the corruption, and especially the lies, unquote. The Sentinel has historically endorsed Republicans, though in the last 20 years they've endorsed Bush in 2000, Kerry in 2004, Obama in 2008, Romney in 2012, Clinton last time, so three of the last five were Democrats. Joining me now is one of the authors of the piece and the opinion editor for the Orlando Sentinel, Mike Lafferty. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Why write this article now so many, many months, uh, more than a year before the presidential election? Well, you know, Jake, when we first heard that the president was coming to town, um, we started talking about what we, <clears throat> as the editorial board, could do um, to, uh, to mark that. And um, when we then found out that he was going to use this as a time to relaunch his campaign, we thought this was as good a time as any to uh, just go ahead and say what had been on our mind for a while, uh, which is that uh, we would not be able to endorse him um, for another term. The new Quinnipiac poll that came out just a couple hours ago shows that 54 percent of Florida voters say they are better off financially now than they were in 2016. Might that not be enough for the voters of your state, which went for Trump last time, even if Orlando and Orange County did not? Oh, sure, it could be. You know, I'm not I'm not really in the business of prognosticating. You know, what what we wanted to do was um, lay down what we thought were some important points to make um, about the president and about his uh, uh, about the economy. And, you know, we acknowledge the economy is doing well and in, in many respects it is. Um, of course, some of that is a continuation of uh, some positive economic news that had been uh, already taking place uh, in the Obama administration. Um, so, yeah, we, we acknowledge that. I don't know how much it'll mean to uh, uh, voters um, uh, next year. And you note in the article, quote, this non-endorsement isn't defaulting to whomever 
the Democrats choose. I, I, I guess that you, uh, the editorial board there kind of is center left in a way. I'm just looking at the last uh, few years full of endorsements. Are you concerned that the Democratic Party might go too far to the left and you don't endorse at all? You know, the uh, editorial board has a long history at the Sentinel of being um, pretty conservative fiscally. That's the reason, uh, really, that uh, we endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012. So, yeah, we are kind of concerned that, um, you know, the, the financial business of the United States, uh, you know, might not get enough attention from the Democratic nominee. Now, I'll tell you, um, in 1980, um, when Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter, uh, we didn't endorse. Um, that's always an option. That's something we might ha- decide to do, depending on who the um, Democratic candidate is. All right, Mike Lafferty from the Orlando Sentinel. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. You're welcome. So let's uh, chew over this. When asked why now, uh, they said in, uh, in their editorial, because there's no point pretending we would ever recommend that readers vote for Trump. We should point out that of the nation's biggest papers in 2016, Hillary Clinton got 57 endorsements. Donald Trump got two. Ultimately, Hillary Clinton is not in the White House. Yeah. Does it matter? <laughs> um, I, I think that newspaper endorsements uh, don't have the punch they used to do. They don't have the pull among uh, their, their readers in terms of driving perhaps ultimate decisions. But this was a barn burner in editorial. I mean, this is sort of an instant classic in terms of laying out a real argument rooted in stats and facts, as well as moral and ethical concerns. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, the fact they're coming out early on the day uh, you know, that the Trump's going to announce in their home city uh, is, is significant. This is one that is going to actually, I think, frame a lot of arguments for Democrats going forward. I think they also, sorry, I think they also, the wording, to, to your point, John, is what people are feeling. I mean, remember in 2018, we heard those white college-educated suburban women talking about the meanness of mm-hmm. Donald Trump. And so some of the arguments they make and the way they make, the lying, people are tired of that. And so I think part of what made it so powerful is it is what people are feeling. And, I, you know, to the economy... Didn't those voters you were just talking about vote for Donald Trump? Barely. Okay. I mean, he won the state barely, right? Yeah. So um, I'm just saying they might think he's mean. They still voted for him. They didn't in 2018. Okay. That's how we had such a you know record turnout, and we ended up with a different Congress. I would say Florida though wasn't uh, was one of the shining Republican examples of what happened in 2018. Yep. They won the governor's seat. They won the Senate mm-hmm. seat. So for all the talk now of the polls, for all the talk of these blistering editorials, the reality is Florida is going to. Uh, be as close as ever, as it has been since we've all been covering politics, and it may very well frustrate Democrats. And, the and state of Florida has changed. Demographically, it's changed. It's never lived up to, oh, these new Puerto Rican voters coming into central <laughs> Florida going to vote Democratic. So the burden is right. on Democrats to win the state. Obviously, President Trump has to win the state. He cannot get to the White House without it. Democrats don't need it, and they may not get it. Um, but- while we're talking about Florida, let me go to you with uh, these new poll numbers of, from the Quinnipiac poll of, of Florida voters uh, with a plus or minus uh, 3.3 margin of error uh, shows Trump losing, whether you believe it or not, uh, to in any number of hypothetical, match, hypothetical matchups. He, he loses against Joe Biden. He loses against Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, South Bend, Indiana Mayor uh, Pete uh, Buttigieg. But again, uh, if you factor in the, the margin of error, the only one who is actually ahead, if you put in the 6.6%, mm-hmm. 3.3% from each side, is Joe Biden. We'll see what happens when Joe Biden gets on the ground. I've been watching him very closely. I don't think he's had a good outing since he's announced for president. He does very well when he's disciplined when he's not competing. Um, but he got 
wrapped around the axle about the Hyde Amendment. People didn't find that too convincing. And when you look at Florida, it is so tight. Maybe a newspaper editorial will probably not do it, but it was a 1% state. Now it's a less than 1% tape. Yes, uh, Governor DeSantis did win. Senator Rick Scott did win, but it was by less than 1%. And then when you start looking at Michigan, where Democrats have been on the march, um, Wisconsin, where the Republicans have lost their edge, Man, this is going to be very tight in all the battleground states. For sure, but but Florida was particularly key here, right? Because what we saw in 2018 is might be called the the shy Trump voter. I mean, DeSantis trailing a lot of polls and then pulls it out fairly convincingly on election day. Same thing really happened if you look at the arc of the polls over the course of 2016. Trump really pulls it out those last couple of days. Number of factors there. So the demographic changes haven't necessarily helped Democrats the way they thought. But the the aging population may be something that Joe Biden is able to translate. He's a reassuring figure. I mean, you don't want to campaign on a return to normalcy, but that's basically the argument in some ways the Orlando Sentinel made. And we should should point out also that in the in the gubernatorial race, the Quinnipiac poll had the Democrat Andrew Gillum winning by seven points and he lost by something like one. Yeah. No, I mean, look. It's going to be it's all about turnout. Right. And that is why you have a number of efforts, particularly on the Democratic side in Florida, looking specifically at registration Led by Gillum doing it Led yeah. by mm-hmm. Andrew Gillum. And there's uh, another effort there as well, because in all of these key states, it is literally going to be a game of inches to yep. uh, quote from my, one of my favorite films, <laughs> because it's going to be about making sure you find your voters, you register your voters and you turn them out. And again, in Florida, the other thing, though, I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting in this poll it's not surprising to me that people continue to say they feel better about the economy sure. and yet they don't feel good about Trump. We forget that, you know, the 2008 crash is not that far behind us. And for a lot of voters, they still feel a lot of anxiety as to whether or not it will last. We saw that in 2016. We saw it. I heard it many times over in 2018. And when you have such an erratic human being coming to your state as your president, that does not give you the, the sense of, and you're talking about tariffs, that doesn't give you calm Florida's, and comfort that your economy is going to stay stable. I mean, Florida's basically President Trump's home state. He has spent more time in Florida than any other state. Uh, you know, he's at Mar-a-Lago. He has property there. So that fits him fairly well. If Joe Biden or whichever Democrat was to pick their first rally, it likely wouldn't be in Florida. Democrats are looking at Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. That's where the real trouble for the president is. Probably not. But let's Florida. let's acknowledge the obvious, too. He's campaigning. He's launching the campaign in Orlando for a reason. Right there in the heart of the I-4 yep, corridor. Sure. We yeah. lost Orange County last time around. Yep. But, you know, he picked up in the Hillsborough uh, Pinellas split. You know, he really was able to make inroads against where Democrats. Yeah, and the panhandle in North Florida. That's exactly right. uh, everyone stick around. Quote, I don't believe the polls. Who said it? President Trump or Joe Biden? <laughs> Stay with us. Just as a new poll puts Joe Biden ahead of President Trump in the key state of Florida in a hypothetical matchup, the former vice president is telling supporters he, quote, doesn't believe the polls right now. And if it's true that he's ahead, he says, then there's a target on his back. My panel uh, is back with me. So Biden at this front raiser last night suggested that he has raised close to 20 million dollars for his campaign so far. That is more than any other Democratic candidate raised in their first quarter fundraising. Biden has been obviously prioritizing this kind of big donor fundraising. Uh, that's a pretty big number, though, 20 million. It is, no doubt about it. I mean, he raised uh, 6.8 or so in the first 24 hours, so about 14 uh, more. It's a big number, without question. It's always, though, I mean, um, shouldn't the former vice president of the United States have to put an impressive number up? I think like what's okay. um, more uh, telling will be the uh, third quarter of the year. But without question, it's a big number. He said it last night for a reason. He's had some hits. I mean, this was not a mistake from Joe Biden at all. Because right. money begets money. 
So people, you know, he still has about uh, 15 days or so, 13 days, whatever it is, until the end of the month. But look, uh, he realizes that he's not going to be the front runner this entire time. So he's trying to take advantage of it as he can. But he's right about the target on his back. The question is, is it going to come at the debates next week? I'm not sure it is. I've, I've been speaking to a lot of advisors of a lot of candidates, and there's a big risk during a big televised uh, debate when each candidate probably has eight minutes to speak at mm -hmm. most, to not use it as a chance to introduce yourself mm -hmm. right. than to go after Joe Biden. So someone may try and throw a grenade or bomb you know, to make a name for themselves, but that person usually doesn't win who does that. And there's this, of course, we're, uh, some of us are old enough to remember 2004. Yes. <laughs> when Richard Gephardt in Iowa went after Howard Dean, who was the front runner, and it was referred to as a murder-suicide pact. And then at the end of it, John Kerry and John Edwards won Iowa. That's exactly right. And again, you know, you've got... Because we've got two nights of debates, you've got to be mindful of what is the message, what is sort of the narrative coming out of the first night and going into the second night. Um, and I agree with Jeff. I mean, you, you, the better idea is to use, and when I've talked to a couple of the candidates, it's to use the time to either A, try to say something meaningful that not necessarily is an attack, but perhaps something unique about one of your plans, one of your ideas, something that will remind people why they like you or make them give you kind of a second look. And uh, we should point out that there were some interesting faces at this Biden fundraiser last night, including former Republican senator of New York, Senator Alphonse D'Amato, uh, and Trump's former Veterans Affairs Secretary, uh, David Shulkin, uh, who, was, uh, uh, who also had served under uh, Obama. But those are some interesting names. I also saw there was some other Republican donor who took to Twitter today to say, I'm, I'm behind President Trump no matter what. Uh, even though he was at this Biden fundraiser. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, look, I, you know, they're, they're with Biden, there is the promise that adults will be back in charge. And with people like Al D'Amato, who's polypartisan when it comes to power. Uh, but, 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 you know, with Joe Biden, there is that sense that, look, you will be getting an A-team of experienced people, and it will, it will be bridge traditional political divides. I'll say something else about that number, because this is important. The big number is not surprising. Uh, it's the small dollar donors. And he did say that his average donation was on 50 bucks. That's a big deal because it does mean there's a degree of grassroots support that maybe isn't evident from his schedule. And that's where his vulnerability is going to come in the debates. Is there real enthusiasm or are we playing it safe? And could that be the riskiest thing? I've got to get something off my chest about Joe Biden, though, because there is this conventional wisdom that he is the most equipped to go against President Trump. I just don't buy that because they both animate the same voters, old white men. And so I think Democrats are going to leave a lot of voters on the table because Donald Trump will say, yes, this is our election. And he will use all the arguments to depress women and minorities against Biden. That is going to happen. So when you talk about he's the most competitive in Pennsylvania, OK, yes, if you want this to be an election decided for and about old white men, the grumpy old men election. Yes, you can have that. And that's where you're going to go. And I think Trump is going to win that matchup unless Joe Biden can change his past, which he can't. I think there are the two dynamics that you need to keep in mind. Number one, what John said, talking about grassroots donors, part of the narrative that Biden has to get out there is that you have grassroots support that you can go back to and back to and that you can animate the grassroots base because you don't want people to just think I'm ahead. I'm going to stay ahead. How did that work for Hillary Clinton, by the way? Right. right? Everybody thought she was going to win. Secondly, don't forget, in my party, the desire to win is pretty much stronger than just about anything. So if he is to become the nominee, I promise you, black people will be out. Latinos will be out. Black women in particular, one of the core of the Democratic Party, we will be out and we will vote in force. So there will be, and I think Amanda's point also includes the fact there will be a big effort at voter discouragement by Absolutely. Republicans. And we're ready. ready to discourage black and yeah. female I'm voters. Not, I'm not so sure for the reason. Let's call it. They're going to yeah, do it. But, but remember, well, the other thing that happened in the yeah. last campaign was, it was 
Republicans and Russians trying to depress right. turnout yeah, with right. social media. But now we're going to have the Chinese as well. So yeah. everyone stick around. we got more to talk about. He warned a storm is coming before he opened fire outside a federal courthouse in Dallas. The disturbing posts turning up on social media after another attempted massacre. Stay with us. In our national lead, officials are currently digging into the background of the gunman who opened fire outside a federal courthouse in Dallas, including his social media profiles. And what officials are finding is pretty disturbing, including posts with Nazi imagery. CNN's Diane Gallagher has more details now on the shooter whose motive is still being investigated and they're looking into as well whether he represents a growing threat in the U.S. of extremist right-wing violence. This week, another young, white, American man launched an attack on the innocent. He definitely had this planned out. He had a vest on. He had, it looked like camo pants on. He had boots on. The 22-year-old Texan opened fire on a federal building Monday, endangering some 300 people inside. Evil. Straight evil. That's what it was. Police were able to shoot and kill him before anyone was hurt. In the days leading up to his attack, the gunman used social media to brandish his rifle and his hate. His Facebook profile shows Confederate flag memes, weapons, and this post, showing a Nazi swastika as the solution to all our nation's political problems. While the president often says the threat to American safety comes from outside... We have terrorists coming through the southern border because they find that's probably the easiest place to come through. Research reveals hate is often homegrown. A study by the Anti-Defamation League shows nearly all the extremist murders in 2018 were committed by right-wing radicals, white supremacists making up a full 78% of the total. Last April in San Diego, a 19-year-old opened fire at a synagogue, killing a worshiper and disfiguring the rabbi. Terrorism like this will not take us down. In October of 2018, 11 people killed at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Bowers made statements regarding genocide and his desire to kill Jewish people. In 2017, vitriol was on display again. This time as an organized Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. A young white extremist drove his car through a crowd killing counter-protester Heather Heyer. Four years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, 21-year-old white supremacist killed nine black worshipers at a church prayer group. And more recently, a death threat was sent to Muslim Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. In this threat to my office, they copied the U.S. Department of Justice, the president. The sender appeared to be an American and expressed glee over the New Zealand mosque attack that left 51 people dead in March. Let's hope and pray that it continues here in the, in the good old USA. The only, only, the only good Muslim is a, is a dead one. Talib was brought to tears as she appealed to the administration for answers. How come we don't have enough tools right now to pull these people up in? And look, they are still trying to figure out the motive. What caused this man uh, to attack this building? But this photo you're looking at now from Dallas Morning News photographer Tom Fox has really defined this incident here in Dallas. And really almost a broader part of it, Jay. You can see him armed to the teeth, more than 150 rounds on him, pointing that rifle, wearing the mask above his face, dressed almost as if he thinks he's going into battle. Again, the Federal Protective Service officers took him down before he was able to hurt any of the 300 people who were inside this building. 
All right, Diane Gallagher in Dallas, thank you so much. And former FBI senior intelligence advisor Phil Mudd uh, comes back to the show. Uh, and let me ask you, we hear a lot about the threat of Islamist terrorists. We hear a lot about from the president about the threat of, of gang members crossing the border, MS-13. Yeah. But this, this, it seems as though the, the bigger threat in this country, at least based on this ADL report and some other statistics, is from white men who are radicalized extremist right-wingers. Is that what the FBI thinks? Yeah, if you look at what the FBI director has said as recently as last month, you're talking about him saying publicly to the Congress, we have more arrests and more killings in recent years from domestic terrorism, that is people like white supremacists, than we do from international terrorism. Remember, a couple years ago, we would have talked about ISIS that had the stronghold of Syria. They don't have that stronghold to recruit people from the United States into. As that, decli- as that uh, declines, People in my world are talking more and more about what you just saw on the screen today. And what is the reason for this? Is it the rise of nationalistic movements worldwide? We saw the in, in New Zealand, we, we've seen uh, acts of violence committed uh, in, in Europe as well. Is that what's going on? There's a couple things happening here. I think that's part of it, what I would call validation. Years ago, if you wanted to join an, an extremist organization that was Islamist like ISIS, you could get validation on the Internet. You get more validation today for people who say, I don't like immigrants. I don't like the way demographics are changing in this country. I mentioned the Internet. This is this is domestic terrorism that is driven by domestic concerns. But one of the interesting things is it's also becoming international. These people are talking to people like those in New Zealand, those in Australia, those in Europe. So we're starting to see a global phenomenon. Is there a reluctance among law enforcement in any way that you can tell to take this threat of extremist right-wing people, murderers, white men, uh, to take it as seriously as the FBI and other organizations, uh, law enforcement organizations, have taken Islamist terrorism. Is there any sort of reluctance to say this is the rising threat as opposed to uh, ISIS or or al-Qaeda? I'm not sure there's a reluctance. There are some problems. The laws about international terrorism and domestic terrorism are, are different. It's tougher to go after, for example, a search warrant for domestic terrorists than it is for an international terrorist. There's also a practical problem. If you're facing ISIS, I might have an opportunity in a chat room. I can watch the communications of ISIS out of Syria. These guys, that is the domestic terrorists, are more fragmented. It could be a couple here and there. There's no center locus that that intelligence guys like me can focus on as a vulnerability. And lastly, President Trump recently said uh, after, I think it was after the attack in New Zealand, that he doesn't see uh, white nationalism as a, as a rising threat. He said, I think it's a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Is it, do you agree with that? No. Th- this is pretty simple. Look at the metrics. I mentioned the, the FBI director. That's arrests and killings. If you want a metrics-based approach to law enforcement, one of your questions is who, po- who, who poses a bigger threat? One of the ways you can measure that is how many are arresting and how many people are getting killed. It's not ISIS anymore. They've declined. It's people like this. All right, Phil Mudd, thank you so much for your expertise. Appreciate it. The unusual step just taken by the Department of Justice to make sure Paul Manafort does not end up at one of the most infamous prisons in America at Rikers Island. Stay with us. The politics lead now a lifeline of sorts for President Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort. Instead of moving Manafort to the notorious Rikers Island while he's tried in New York for fraud, Manafort will instead stay at a federal facility in Manhattan, the Justice Department making that decision, intervening in this single federal inmate's case, a Justice Department run by Attorney General Bill Barr, handpicked, of course, by President Trump. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, critics are calling this decision special treatment for a person connected to the president. 
any reaction, Mr. Manafort? Convicted former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort is most likely not going to the notorious Rikers Island State Prison after the Justice Department got involved. In a letter dated June 11th, newly installed Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen, Bill Barr's number two, stepped in to ensure the Manhattan District Attorney was looking at a request from Manafort's lawyers. Rosen wrote, Manafort's lawyers proposed he remain in federal custody but be made available to New York when needed for the prosecution of the state criminal matter. Continuing, the department would like to know if your office has a response. Former federal prosecutor Shan Wu says the deputy AG's involvement is unusual. That's really something usually completely in the realm of the Bureau of Prisons. The deputy would have no need to become involved in that. The DOJ does oversee the Bureau of Prisons, and a senior DOJ official said the department wants to keep Manafort in federal custody to err on the side of caution. Manafort's situation is unusual. He's already been convicted and sentenced to seven and a half years for federal financial crimes, and now he's facing charges in New York stemming from the same circumstances. Manafort's team cite his age, 70 years old, and his declining health as reasons to keep him at the federal prison in Pennsylvania while his pretrial hearings in New York play out. Manhattan's District Attorney Cy Vance says his office has never taken the position that Mr. Manafort should be housed at Rikers Island and instead told the Pennsylvania prison warden that the options now are either to produce Mr. Manafort to New York State or to house him in a federal facility in New York City like the Metropolitan Correctional Center, where Manafort is being held for now pending arraignment on state charges. Also there, notorious drug lord El Chapo, following his conviction at trial. And a Justice Department official has acknowledged that the situation with Paul Manafort is unusual compared with the average case, but did explain that since Paul Manafort is a high-profile defendant, the Bureau of Prisons kept DOJ apprised from the very beginning. But Jake, what DOJ couldn't say is how many times in the past a deputy attorney general has stepped in like this. The criticism will likely continue. Jake. All right, Jessica Snyder. Thank you. We now know what longtime Trump confidant Hope Hicks is going to be asked by some members of Congress when she heads to the Hill tomorrow. Stay with us. Welcome back. And you're looking at some live pictures right now out of Orlando, Florida, where President Trump is set to launch his 2020 reelection campaign with a rally this evening. Crowds have been building all day long. It's been a bit overshadowed by the acting defense secretary, Patrick Shanahan, withdrawing from consideration for the official job. That's it for The Lead. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.